Hi, everybody, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 3 of the Scene From Above podcast. I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. And we are your hosts for a show that aims to bring you an informal discussion around the cool things happening in and around the world of Earth observation at the moment. You can reach us on Twitter using the hashtag SceneFromAbove, and you can access the podcasts via either the acgeospatial.com or jogger.co.uk website, or we're on iTunes. You can get us there. If you do get your podcasts via iTunes, then please leave a review. The more reviews we get on iTunes, the more people can find this podcast. Cool. Let's do the news. Let's do the news indeed. Sounds like a good plan. I've got two pieces of news that I've seen this week, or two things that uh, I found really interesting. They both relate to the cloud and Amazon Web Services. Um, The first one is Sentinel-1 data being made available on AWS through the Sentinel on AWS service, which has got Sentinel-2 already on, and it's been set up by Synergize. These guys are doing amazing work with the Sentinel Playground, and they've got a, a plugin for QJS, and I was just looking this morning at their configurator service where you can create your own WMS service, um, and you can do that with Sentinel-1 data. So I, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, oh, this is going to come. This is Sentinel-1 is going to come onto AWS at some point, and it's going to make it uh, a lot easier uh, and more available for people to get hold of the data. Because previously, if I'm not mistaken, it was just available on ESA's Sci-Hub. Yeah, this is great news. It's really good to be able to have a way of accessing all of these data sets through synergize i mean those guys seem to be really pushing the data sharing aspect of this they're doing some really good work i hadn't realized they were behind the sentinel one uh, sorry not the sentinel one the sentinel plugin in qgis that's really cool it's only grd data not slc products yet okay as far as i'm aware and they're gonna they pushed it to cloud optimized geotiff already wow cool yeah exactly so this is this is something we might talk a little bit about later it's just really impressive. I mean, you know, I think you've said on the previous podcast that SAR data is just a speckly mess if, if you don't know what you're doing with it. So this is, this is a huge leap forward, I think. And yeah, I think so. I think this is going to help users no end. And it's a request to pays unless you're in Europe, uh, and then it's free to access. So that's, that's great for us in Europe. Uh, this isn't really news news. But it's something that I did last weekend, and that is watch the film The Farthest. So I don't know if you've come across this, uh, but it's basically a documentary about the Voyager program. And for those of you that don't know, Voyager is two satellites that were launched back in the late 1970s with the remit initially of getting out to Saturn and imaging the different planets on the way to Saturn and then investigating Saturn a bit more. As it turned out, there was an opportunity that the um, the outer planets were also going to align. So by the time the second satellite got there, it was able to shoot out and image those planets as well. So at the moment, I think I'm right in saying that the best imagery that we have and the best data that we have for the entire uh, for the outer planets, certainly those beyond Saturn, comes from the Voyager probes that are out there. Uh, the other big thing about Voyager was they put a gold disc on to the uh, satellite with all sorts of information about um, the human race and, and sort of music we play and things like that. 
And it's, uh, yeah, it's a really interesting documentary, actually, uh, because one of the uh, voyagers has now left the, the solar system. It's the first man-made object to leave the solar system. And the other one is well on its way to, to doing so as well. And the fact that they're still working, they still communicate with Earth and, and can still take commands back to them, even though it takes a heck of a long time for those commands to be relayed backwards and forwards, yeah. is absolutely amazing. And there's a really nice little bit in the uh, documentary as well about how the uh, the famous blue dot image came about. Oh, yeah. It, it nearly didn't happen, basically, because it just looked like it was a, a problem with one of the pixels. It wasn't until someone worked out that the, the slightly lighter pixel in the dark blob was actually Earth. Yeah, if you get the chance, I'd, I'd recommend you, you watch it. Wow. Yeah, I'm just looking at Voyager on Wikipedia. So, yeah, it's older than me. <laughs> it's such a cool program. I really like Voyager. I think it's one of those things that should be touted more uh, around the globe and people should know know about okay well so film reviews looks like it's one to watch yes definitely the other thing that i wanted to mention again related to aws is i saw a blog post from digital globe entitled using machine learning to save money on cloud data storage they're saying they've got 18 years of data and they've collected over 100 petabytes of imagery so this is expensive to host. And this says here that it's um, a fifth cheaper to move to Amazon Glacier rather than Amazon S3. Amazon Glacier, as you can probably imagine, is slow, accessible data, whereas S3 is instantly accessible data. And there's a difference in cost, and the difference is about a fifth. And I put the numbers in, and the monthly hosting costs are for 100 petabytes of imagery seem to be astronomic. So you can see why this would be very important for them to, to, to get hold of their costs. And it was interesting because the machine learning approach we often hear with satellite imagery is to derive data or analytics from the data rather than trying to predict what data is going to be most useful. Yeah. And sort of hidden within this story is, a, is almost an admission to say, we're not really sure which data was the most usable previously. Perhaps now we're a bit more targeted. So this is great. And it again, I sort of alluded to it earlier. We've talked about Landsat and Sentinel data sets because they're open and really available to the user. It's not always something that people think about is the what are the, the costs on the back end to the, the organizations that are actually hosting yeah. this. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to know how much imagery Digital Globe has. You know, being, being able to understand that and then... For them to have options between Glacier and S3 is a really useful thing for them. The data can stay available to people. Yeah. Oh, so uh, I've got a piece of news. I don't know if you've seen in the paper or on the internet. I'm sure you have because it's everywhere. Rocket Lab has yeah. arrived. So they're the, the latest private enterprise player in the space arena. And they've launched something called the Humanity Star, which is basically a massive... 1970s disco glitter ball that is going around the world as we speak. And um, what this does is basically reflect light down to the ground as a, a glitter ball does. So it's not dissimilar in terms of what it looks like with the naked eye from certain flares you can see every now and again at sunset or sunrise when um, the solar panels of certain satellites are at a, an angle whereby you'll see a, a bright flash for last for about 30 seconds or something and go across the sky so it's doing the same sort of thing and the point 
behind it, I think, is to try and get people to just be aware of space and the fact that there are satellites up there and what have you. But I had a play around on their, the humanitystar.com website earlier on. Yeah. And it's really cool. You can, so you can put in where you live. Uh, so there's a map that shows you where the satellite is now. And then you can put in the location of where you live or where you're going to be. And it tells you the next date and time at which the humanity star will be going over. And you have the potential to see it. So obviously, if it's cloudy, you won't see it. Yeah. And then you can just plonk that directly into your online calendar. So I have a calendar reminder for the 22nd of February at something bonkers like 6.10 in the morning. So it's highly unlikely I'll be up and looking at it. But if I wanted to, I could pop out and, and see this thing glint at me as it whizzes over. So who knows? Maybe I'll get up and, and see it. So in terms of CubeSats and more temporal data, this can only be a good thing, I think. The Humanity Star? I don't know. I, I, haven't, <laughs> I, I, I have seen articles about calling this space graffiti. Yeah, I, I, I haven't quite fully <laughs> processed it in my mind. When I first heard about it, I thought, oh, that's quite cool. And I, I tracked it and then I thought, well, hang on, you know, is this going to lead to an explosion of stuff just being pushed up there? I, I feel like I sound like a bit like a killjoy, but I mean, I, I think it's a, a nice novel idea. So a couple of other things that I've seen that might be of interest and both of them, are, well, they're linked in that Planet Labs turns up in both of them. Um, Planet Labs has created and released Planet Explorer Beta, which is their web mapping tool that allows users, um, ostensibly that can be anyone, uh, any member of the public, to examine over 2 million images, and those images are updated monthly. These images date back to 2016, and they've got facial resolutions of between 3 meters and 40 meters. I logged in just before recording this podcast and had a bit of a play around, and it's, it's really neat. Not only is it super speedy, but you can drag and drop two images of interest next to each other and then use a swipe function. The usability of the site is really, really good. The speed of the site is great. And I hadn't looked at any planet imagery other than sort of stuff that comes out in the media for quite some time. Um, yeah. I was blown away by the quality of some of the, the more recent data. Really, really nice. I'm going to have to find a, a project or a, a something to, to get hold of some of these data sets and, and play around with them. Yeah. Do you use Planet Data much? Uh, I have used it a little bit in the past. Okay. Uh, but the speed that they're changing is amazing. You know, the I've, I've used the, the API when it first came out and they've migrated to another API, I think, and we've, I agree with you, it, it is fast i'm a big fan of, of planet and what they're doing yeah they're doing a really nice job so well done planet um so the the next one is something that came across my desk more as something to do with hydrology and water resources and things like that cape town is about to run out of water so there are 3.7 million people on south africa's western coast i think the majority of them live down in, in cape town and the key reservoirs are more or less empty. Um, as of the end of January, the reservoirs that supply those 3.7 million people are only 26% full. Wow. Um, well, where's it derived from? Why is it drying up? I think it's rainwater, as far as I can tell. And I think that use, water usage is high, and it just hasn't really rained for a long time. The forecasts are that the water will dry up at something called day zero 
which is going to be early April 2018, unless it rains again. Yeah. But unfortunately, the, the normal rainy season for that part of the world is May through to September. So it looks as if they're going to be in a bit of a bind. And the linked planet is, um, I saw a CNN report about this at the end of January. And I'll, yeah. I'll put the link in the show notes. But again, some really nice time series imagery from planet. And it just shows how little water there is in, yeah. these, uh, in these reservoirs at the moment. So, yeah. Another win for Planet, I think, in terms of making an impact on people's understanding of how remote sensing and Earth observation data can help day to day. Okay, shall we crack on with our topic? Yeah, let's. So what have you signed us up to this this podcast? (laughs) Predictions is, is our topic this time around, and predictions are always fraught with danger all we can really say or all i feel i can really say is what i perceive to be known already to be happening so there's there's more satellite launches as we discussed last time uh, and therefore there will be more data and therefore there'll be more challenges to handle that data i feel that 2018 will be the year of analysis ready data <laughs> there you go straight in there there you go I'll get laugh in the face of danger yeah why not? <laughs> Earth Explorer now has a box for Landsat for analysis-ready data. And I know that there's work being done in the UK and I assume elsewhere on Sentinel data. Yeah. And, it, you know, to, to my mind, it, it makes sense. So I don't think it's particular wizardry to be saying that analysis-ready data, ARD, is coming. Yeah, this is an interesting topic, though, because in the past, admittedly, data volumes were much, much lower. But there would be an organization that was tasked with collecting some data set and they, they would put up the satellite. They would then collect the imagery and they would then do a sort of rudimentary amount of, of processing on that. Although I say that it was probably, a, a, from their point of view, it was probably a lot of effort. And then that would be what would get sent out to the, the user. And it's interesting that now that there's even more data to be dealt with, actually, there's been this shift. Well, so this is an interesting question. Is it that the user is no longer willing to do that processing? Or is it that the data supplier wants more people to use their data and therefore they are the ones that are driving this move towards analysis-ready data? Or is it just a balance somewhere between the user and the supplier whereby there's so much information, so much data coming down from satellites now that if if it's not processed up to an analysis-ready data set, then it just won't get used, irrespective of who's doing the, the processing. I can definitely see from the European Space Agency standpoint, the ability for everybody to have access and to be able to use the data, the more readily available, the more ready to use the data is, the higher the chance of anybody using it. So I can definitely see the incentive there in terms of finding the data, I don't think that that's been completely nailed yet. I agree. Even as, as two people within the industry, you'd sort of think that we should be able to say, oh, yeah, it's dead easy if you want, I don't know, data from IRS that you should know exactly where to go to, how much it'll cost and how, how you'll get it. Whereas, But I, I agree with you. It's still a confusion as to, to get to these easily. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think about a sort of 
general public type user, maybe someone at higher education using data for a project, for example, you know, their, their search or their ability to search wouldn't necessarily be on a sensor. It might be, but it wouldn't necessarily be. They might just want give me the highest resolution or I just want any thermal data in this area. That, that can be done today. I just don't know how intuitive it is. Whereabouts to search win? You know, we all use Google and Amazon and, and YouTube. Is there anything that could be learned from the way they search or the way they recommend? Or is it just, is it just such a different thing? It feels like it's a different thing. There are companies out there that offer search for satellite data. And there are good pages, you know, good portals and very comprehensive searching. Most end users for non-open data would prefer just to email a specialist and say, can I have this area from 2014, please? And let the specialist find that data for them and, and accept that there would be a cost in them in finding it. I feel there is more to come from compressional formats. Yes. Whether that's this year or next year, but as we get more data and more data and more data, cost of storing data on the scales that perhaps we work on on local machines is, is, is trivial. But if you're adding terabytes a day, then you can imagine you know, having multiple accesses to that data. You can imagine that being a cost whether it's hosted by a, an external company or by yourself so so what do you what do you mean by compressional formats because i came across cloud optimized geotiffs yeah uh, sort of probably around about autumn last year and i don't know whether i'm ahead of the curve or behind the curve but i hadn't heard of them before and they look to be basically the the right way to go if you're going to be storing data on cloud services like aws or azure or yeah google cloud do you know of others or is that the, the main one out there that, that's that's the one that seems to be leading at the moment yeah no i don't know about this and because it's so new i don't i don't know enough about it it's, it's interesting i know that you and i both went to some workshops that were put on by google at the back end of 2017 um primarily to be introduced to different functionality in Google Earth Engine. And I was blown away by the speed at which everything happened. And I didn't ask the question then, and I haven't looked into it since, about whether or not it's anything to do with the way that the data was stored or whether it was to do with the fact that they have such massive amounts of compute power. Yes. Uh, I mean, I, I think for them, I think it's compute power. But the, the beauty is that you effectively not duplicating the data, the cost in downloading it, maybe not you know, in dollar cost, but in time cost can be quite high, especially in hard to access places. But if you can just effectively either log onto an external machine or you know, do it for a website even better, such as Google Earth Engine or whatever, you know, the European version, the DS, whenever that comes, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? At the end, you just get the, the information that you want back. Yeah, so if there's anyone out there from Google Earth Engine or Planet or Diaz or anyone else who deals with these types of things and they want to either correct us or, or make some comments about compressional formats, then hashtag seen from above on Twitter and we'd be really interested to find out what's going on. Do you have any, any predictions or thoughts? I just want to revisit something, so bear with me on this one. But 
back in 2010 and again in 2014, I wrote a couple of articles, both of which went into GeoConnections magazine. Those were sort of predictions. Now, one was based around the use of uh, Earth observation data in multidisciplinary consultancies. So it was very sector specific. And the other one was a bit more general. But I'm just going to read out some of the uh, headline topics. So one was cost of imagery. One was timely data supply and data access. There was also usage rights um, had to be sorted out. And then skill shortage and staff expectations were were two more. But those were in the 2010 Mm. paper. In the 2014, it was about using smaller platforms, but with the ability to collect larger images. And it was all about the fact that we were going to have so much data um, and that we needed to deal with that. And that the whole industry was, was changing. Yeah. Now, the reason I bring this up is to say, well, I think in the majority of cases, we've hit most of those and we've, we are in the process of dealing with them now. In terms of where we are now and what we can look forward to in I'm going to move beyond 2018 to the next three or four or five years. I think hyperspectral is going to be the big thing. So at the moment, we've got some really nice multispectral cameras up there. We're getting some great imagery. There are two satellites that are due to be launched in the near future. There was one called NMAP, which is due for launch in 2020, and another one called HiSpiri, which is slated at the moment for 2023. And I know that's getting right towards the end of a sort of period at which we can make any predictions. Yeah. But... I think to have true hyperspectral cameras from a spaceborne platform is going to really change initially the way that the majority of specialists in the land cover and environmental monitoring sector deal with satellite data. But yeah. I think as the applications for hyperspectral data become more routine and the benefits of the, the type of information that you get from those sensors is seen by others, I think. I think this is going to be a game changer. So that, that's my main prediction, is that hyperspectral is going to become important. There was a time when hyperspectral was talked about and used quite a lot. Um, I don't see it as much today. But as we talked about last time, this, this CubeSat with a hyperspectral camera on it, yeah, are going to launch pretty soon. It, it's clearly one of the gaps that's missing. Spectral would be the next uh, progress point, I would I would yeah, think. I think so. And I mean, I don't know if you've seen the Satellite Applications Catapult put out a news release this week about a project that they're collaborating with a whole bunch of other people down in Cornwall. And they're trying to see whether or not there's a signature for lithium. Yes. As, yeah. as, as electric vehicles and battery storage and all the other sort of renewable technology that are going to require batteries ramps up there's a there's a need for lithium for those batteries you need to know where it is you can't just sort of dig up everywhere i think this is a really interesting idea and at the moment they're they're working well i haven't seen the details of the project but it seems like they're going to have to be working with multispectral data yeah amongst other types of data sets and i just think having the ability for a true hyperspectral sensor would really help them do that. So it's a, it sounds like an, a really cool project. It's got really laudable aims, yeah, yeah, really good plan. But also with these hyperspectral satellites coming online in the early 2020s, they also have almost like a, a route plan for new data sets to, to drop into that workflow. Yeah. To sort of wrap up this topic of predictions, 
there's a well-shared LinkedIn blog about the Gartner hype cycle. Have you, do you know these cycles where they, every year they produce this curve that has technology trigger the peak of expectations? I think they call it the peak of inflated expectations, the trough of disillusionment, okay. the slope of enlightenment, and the plateau of productivity. And every year they, they put a load of dots on this curve. And from memory, I think AI, machine learning and stuff is, is, if not at the top of the peak of inflated expectations, it's approaching the top. And this, this curve is often sort of shared and saying this is, this is where it is. There's this post on LinkedIn of eight lessons from 20 years. I'll, I'll send a, a link to it. Lesson number one is we are terrible at making predictions. <laughs> <laughs> Lesson two is that an alarming number of technology trends are just flashes in a pan. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Uh, whether it be one-hit wonders they've listed as social TV, truth verification, expertise location in 2007. I, d- I don't even know what half these things are. <laughs> it's a good blog. It's a really good blog and, it, and it's well worth reading. It's saying that we don't know and sometimes things get hyped beyond belief and then they don't really ever deliver. And I'm, I'm starting to see that a little bit with machine learning now. People saying, hang on a second. There's nothing new about machine learning. Yeah. Doing supervised classifications yeah. in our world for decades. Yeah. You, you know, it, it's, not, it's not new. The, the changes in the, in, in the amount of data, it's just perhaps more accessible. And, and I think all we can really do is sort of see patterns that may or may not actually be there. You know, I, I think you're right about hyperspectral, but who knows? And the big changes looking outside of EO, I, I feel always come when there's an incumbent that's been there a long time and someone comes up with a new idea to do it cheaper or faster or whatever and disrupts the market. And then everyone plows in to disrupt the market. Do you want to say anything about video? I mean, with, with video... It's coming. You know, there's no two ways about it. And I, I, I previously posed a question, is it hot or hype? And I, I think that short 60-second bursts or whatever they will be, and the common consensus was that that was probably going to be hype. Whether you can derive data from the video, that may well become hot. Getting an idea of 3D models may well be incredibly valuable. There's obviously a value there. I don't know how it's going to sort of play, but I think it's that it's coming. What do you think about video? Well, I think it's going to be big in 2018, 2019. I don't think that is in question. I think um, there's going to be lots of news about it, certainly in terms of being able to put out very, very nice looking, very cool media clips and things like that. Then I think it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be a big news story. In terms of using video as a data source, I also think it's going to be pretty big, actually. Um, I think at the moment, there's a lot of people sort of wondering how it will work. But actually, from what I've seen and heard about the generation of high-resolution 3D models, I think that would be able to integrate with something like, or hopefully would be able to integrate with something like BIM, uh, so Business Information Management. And... I think that could be a real game changer, actually. So I, I think maybe the, the video format itself won't be the important thing. It'll be, as ever, the data that's derived from it and how that then merges with other data sets. So just like any other form of Earth observation data, it's yeah. usually about how you can merge information derived from an image with some other data set. And I think that'll be the same with video. But I think because it's new, 
And because the video clips themselves are engaging, then I think, um, yeah, I think people will be really excited by it. Uh, I was wondering the other day, are we at peak Earth observation? <laughs> and not sure we're at peak yet. <laughs> Go back to the Gartner hype cycle. I think we're on the, uh, still on the up. Yeah, I think so. Well, I, I think that's uh, a good place to, to leave it. So, dear listener, in case you didn't realise, coming up in April, on April the 11th, in fact, in London, is Rasters Revealed. So this is the second year that I've run this conference, and it's ostensibly a one-day conference about raster data. So it's not just Earth observation from satellites, it's all sorts of things, elevation data, hydrographic data, meteorologic data climate. You can even go off planet and I'd be really interested to have some talks uh, from planetary scientists about the type of information and data that they're dealing with in other parts of the solar system. Really the whole point of the meeting is to get people together from different sectors who all deal with raster data and just discuss what they do and how they do it and it's to try and create a community that crosses all of these different sectors and, and interest groups and see whether or not we can learn from each other and share technologies and just help each other out really. So if you're interested, go to rastersrevealed.net or check out the hashtag rastersrev on Twitter and you'll be able to find information about how to submit an abstract or even book a place. Cool. Uh, so thank you everyone for listening I uh, hope you've enjoyed this episode and thank you Andrew for your comment thank you very much I've thoroughly enjoyed talking about predictions in 2018 and speak to you next time yes cheers everyone bye bye um, Andrew yep. is, is there a really loud clock in your room uh, sorry <laughs> can you process that out <laughs>
it to find me How he was battered like a doll Three pieces and all appalled I rolled my windows down and he asked me Son, are you happy? And I just drove away Podcast music is Cracker Jacks and Tin Whistles by Ocean Heights and is licensed under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. Available on freemusicarchive.org.